0: Amen. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. We're still going through the book of the Gospel of John, and Jesus is making headway. He has begun to teach in the temple precinct. They're at the Feast of Tabernacles, probably in the midway of the feast right now. It's when Jesus gets up, and he begins to speak, and he's speaking not like regular rabbis or teachers because he's not he's speaking with the authority of God he's speaking in love he's speaking in truth and because they think they know who he is they say we we don't how does this guy understand letters the way he's speaking. And we talked about this last week. They're saying he hasn't went to any university, any theological school to know what he's speaking because the main language they were speaking at that time in the first century was Aramaic. So I'm sure as he was exegeting the scriptures, Jesus Christ, he was speaking Hebrew. And they were wondering, what's going on with this guy? And Jesus begins to tell them the doctrine, the message that he is speaking Does not come from him, but it comes from the Father. And that grabbed their attention. And then what they begin to do, and I'm saying the they is the religious leaders that's been nipping at his heels the entire time of his ministry. And he began, and they begin to set, sit in judgment of Jesus Christ, of God himself. And Jesus begins to tell them, well, uh, I don't mind if you judge, but if you judge, judge righteously. Judge righteous judgment. And he gives them an example, speaking of the Sabbath, how they've been condemning him for doing these wonderful miracles on the Sabbath. And he proceeds to tell them that, hey, you guys circumcised a little baby on the Sabbath, so why can I heal a, a man whole on the Sabbath. And so when he began to tell them that, they became even more angry. And we'll pick up at verse 25. And this is what it says in verse 25 of chapter 7. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? And please understand that there's many different opinions and accusations that are going on being tossed around throughout the crowd about Jesus. He's, he's finally came up. His brother says, why don't you come up with us to the feast? And Jesus says, I'm not going now. It's not my time. It's not my hour. We know later on he goes up there. And so part of the crowd is saying that Jesus, he has a demon. Others are saying, isn't this the one they're trying to kill? And verse 26 tells us, they say, but look, He speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? And they ask the question because no one is publicly trying to censure him at all. They're allowing him to speak. And the crowd is beginning to think, do they really know this is Christ because they're not stopping him from speaking? He says, however, we know where this man is from. No, you think you know where he's from. Because they're thinking Jesus has come from Nazareth. Yes, he lived there, but he didn't come from there. And the scriptures tell us that he would come from Bethlehem. But even not, that is not really where he comes from. But Micah 5, 2 states it. It says, but you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So his true origin, Jesus Christ's true origin, is from God. They overlook that. We know how this works. Usually to establish someone's identity, even now, one of the first things we ask is where you're from. If I'm asking someone, where are you from? And if they tell me South Georgia, the first thing comes to my mind, you're a country boy. Same thing if you're from North Georgia. But if someone tells me they're from Atlanta and the, and the closing area around there, I say, well, they're a little more, got a little bit more city in them. They're a little bit more cooler. <laughs> I'm just joking. Don't get mad at me. But we, we ask people that question to establish, okay, we get a view of them. That's what they're asking about Jesus But they go on to say, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So either these dudes did not go to a synagogue or when they went to the synagogue, they weren't paying attention. So don't be one of those types of people because they should have known the scriptures had told them that Jesus would come from Bethlehem. But once again, the, the Johannine gospel is doing more than that because in the prologue, John establishes that Jesus is sent from God. And if they don't understand that, he's, he, he, that he was raised in Bethlehem from the beginning, how would they ever understand that he's coming from God? But verse 28 tells us, then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me. Now, this is very remarkable here. He says, you both know me. We don't know how close Jesus was from hearing their conversation, but we do know he's in the temple precinct. The Sanhedrin, they are lurking around like hyenas also because they would love to get their hands on him to kill him, but they can't do it right now. So because the people are intrigued, they are enamored with this teaching. The crowd is divided once again. Who is this guy? Some are saying he's a deceiver. Some are asking, is he demon possessed because he thinks someone is trying to kill him? And some are saying, no, this is the man they are trying to kill. Could this be the very Christ? That's the question. Because they are allowing him to talk openly here. Jesus is listening to all of this conversation that is going on, and suddenly in the midst of this conversation, he cries out, you both know me and you know where I am from. This lets us know once again that they are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's what uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 states you both know me and you know where I am from. I bet they cease talking when he begins to speak. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Now the religious leaders, they're blown away by this. I'm sure Joseph of Arimathea is there. I'm sure Nicodemus is in the crowd and hears this. Hearing this must convict them tremendously, but also This is one of the days of the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, you both know me and you know where I am from. Because that's part of what they are debating about in the crowd. He says, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. He's righteous. Whom you do not know. Verse 29, Jesus says, but I know him for I am from him and he sent me. Therefore, they said, they sought to take him because they understood what he was implying. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. He was confident in that because he knows he hasn't been to the cross yet. The father remains sovereign and his enemies cannot get to him because his hour, his Time has not come for him to be glorified. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel on Wednesday night study. David tells uh, Jonathan, as Saul is pursuing him, 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, verse 3, latter part of it, David says this. But truly as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David was correct about that we should understand that. That's how we live. We're just a step away from death. Augustine said this, the Lord keeps that step secret so that we might measure the rest of our steps. We don't know the time. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour that the Lord is going to call us home. By not knowing that, we should walk circumspectly. Sometimes I say, Lord, You know, it might be good for someone as stubborn as me that you put me on my deathbed and you say in the next six months you're going to leave here. And that would give me plenty time to get my house in order, to be a praying man the way I should be, to let my words be full of grace seasoned with salt the way they should be. And if if I'm doing what Augustine said I should do, that's the way I should live every day. That's what David is saying here. That's what the Lord wants us to know. No man knows the day or the hour. And knowing that, believers should walk circumspectly, understanding that, yes, we're indestructible until the, until the Lord calls us. But more than that, since we don't know the day or the hour, we should live holy lives. That's what he's saying here. He says in verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So once again, they're divided. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring. And remember that word murmuring, they're debating who Jesus Christ is. Murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So they have both the temple guards... And the Roman guards delegated to go and grab Jesus at this time. Then Jesus said to them, verse 33, Now them is inclusive. So it would include the officers, but not exclusively the officers. Some of the religious leaders once again are there. Joseph of Arimathea is there. Gamaliel probably is there. Part of the Sanhedrin is there. Of course, we know John, the apostle of love, is there because he's writing this letter 90 years of of age. And I'm sure probably some of Jesus's family is there. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then, and if you have the New King James, it's probably other translation, The then is in italics, which means it's inserted there to give us a sense of what he's saying So what he says is, I shall be with you a little while longer. And once again, it's present present tense. And I go to him who sent me. So literally it says, I shall be with you a little while longer, and I am withdrawing to the one that sent me. Jesus says, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And I'm sure at this time they are asking, what is he talking about? Because you have to understand, he's standing right in front of them. Now, I'm sure Jesus is saying, yet a little while, speaking in about six months, I'm going and I'll be paying your price, the price of the world for their sins. He says, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then once again, the then is inserted, trying to give us a sense of the, of the sentence. And I am presently withdrawing to the one who sent me. He's saying he's finishing his course and he's going back to the father. He says, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And where I am presently, you cannot come. And what he's doing, it hearkens all the way back When Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 13, he says this to Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And I'm sure poor Nicodemus is saying, what are you talking about? You're standing right here. But Jesus is saying, I'm standing right here, but yet I'm still in heaven. That's why he was saying, what are you saying? It goes all the way back to the prologue. In chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus explains the entire thing, and he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The only unique Son who is in the heart of God was demonstrating God. That's what he's saying. So while I'm in your presence I'm still in the bosom of the father because what he's telling me to do, I'm doing it here on earth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thou God, the Lord is one God, the Godhead. He's saying, yes, I'm, I'm here now, but I'm also still in the heart of the father. Verse 33 he says, I shall be with you a little while longer, and I am withdrawing to the one that sent me. He says, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, he was somewhere right there, even though he was on earth, he was in the Father's presence. And right there, he's saying, you cannot come to me. Then the Jews said among themselves, "What?" is he saying? And what he's saying is, I'm standing in the Father's presence right here, right now. I'm indestructible until my course is finished. And that's all of us. He sent me into this world. I am with you a little while longer. I am in the process, even now, of withdrawing and going back to the Father. And you're going to seek me and not find me. And a matter of fact, because where I am, you don't have access to get there. What are they doing? They are rejecting God right in his presence. If you don't come to me, I'm the key, I'm the door, I'm the chief shepherd. You have no access to the Father. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, speaking of the Gentiles? Verse 36 What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So they repeat the entire thing. At least they were listening. But we have to understand once again that the natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit because it is foolishness to them. But what Jesus is saying, there's a somberness, there's a sobriety, there's a finality of what he's saying. And it's sad. You will seek me and not find me because once again, they were rejecting him. Now, verse thirty seven. On the last day, that great day of the feast, that eight-day ceremonial feast, Jesus stood. Why does the Holy Spirit let us know that Jesus stood? Probably because usually when rabbis and their teachers would teach, they would sit and those that were listening would stand. We need to try that. (laughs) But now, Jesus says, he's been teaching, they've been listening, and all of a sudden he stands and he takes the posture of a prophet. Because what would a prophet do? They would declare the words of God. So he stands and he begins to speak. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus had watched this seven-day ritual, well, eight-day rituals. He's watched it for seven days, and he's standing here in the midst of the people, and he knows what Paul will write later when he writes to the church of Corinth, and that rock was Christ. And just as in the Old Testament, when Moses was commanded, remember that? Moses was commanded to smite the rock initially in order to satisfy the thirst of the people. What did he do? He smote the rock first. But remember, there was a second time in that wilderness wandering when once again, the children of Israel was thirsty. And we know, if we know anything about the children of Israel... We know they were whiners and complainers in that wilderness wandering just like we are. That's what they were doing. And you know, it's hard to serve anyone when they're whining and complaining. But still, God wanted to supply their needs. They needed water. God knew that. He loved the children of Israel, whiners and complainers as they were. And what does he do? He tells Moses to go this time and speak to the rock and water will come forth. Once again, Moses has just about had enough of these people since they parted the Red Sea. It's amazing to me. It's astonishing to me when you go back and read the Old Testament account of this. As soon as they parted the Red Sea, C.H. McIntosh said, When God was creating the world, everything was fine until he put man in it. And the moment he put man in it, there was complaining. And so as soon as he parted the Red Sea and puts their foot on the other side, they began to complain the entire time, and the Lord is still taking care of them. But this time, God tells Moses, Moses... Don't smite the rock, just speak to the rock, and water will come forth. Numbers 20.10 tells us what happens. Moses says this because he's upset, he's angry, he's frustrated. We've all been there. Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? He messes up twice here. Most people speak about the analogy, the imagery that, that Moses has just blown. And we'll look at that. But Moses also blows it by saying, must we, as if he's part of the Godhead. He can't bring water out of anything. But he says, uh, add me to this also. And he smites the rock the second time. And because God is still gracious, he allows this water to flow and satisfy the people. But then he said, Moses, come over here for a minute. Let me talk to you for a moment here. I thought I told you to speak to the rock, but you smote the rock. And I'm sure Moses said, speak, smoke, what does it matter? I'm upset. The people are crazy. I did it. But it matters because once again, it breaks the imagery. Jesus Christ was gracious. He is gracious. Jesus Christ is loving God becomes man and takes the entire sin of the world. He was smitten for us, you guys. You know this. He doesn't need to be smitten again. All we as children of God need to do now is go to him, speak to him in his will, and he will supply all of our needs according to his glory by Christ Jesus. We can take that to the bank he will do that. My problem is I want more than my needs. And he's gracious sometimes to give me those things, but I have to size it down. No, he's going to supply my needs and that's what matters. And he does that. And so Moses, for this, you can't go. You can't enter into the promised land. Now, after the water comes out, And this is the memorial of that. And they've been doing this at the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. And I told you guys, every day they would go from the temple precinct down the stairs all the way down to the pool of Siloam and bring water up and pour it on the right side of the altar with wine and water. But on that last day, that eighth day, they would be blowing trumpets. They will be singing praise songs just full of festivities going on. But on that last day... It was a somber and solemn moment. No singing, no trumpet blast, nothing going on. And they would still make that march down to the pool of Siloam and they would pretend to gather water. And they would go to the right side of the altar and pretend they were pouring the water out. It was at this moment that Jesus Christ stands up because what they're saying. Yes, Yahweh provided for you physical water, and the same way he provided physical water for your wilderness wandering, he will provide spiritual water for us. That's the imagery. That's the type. That's what he means here. And he says, if any man thirsts, And for eight days, he's been watching a religious ceremony, and he knows they are in dire need of this spiritual drink. In essence, he's saying, you're thirsty and I know it. You're spiritually thirsty in the same way our forefathers were physically thirsty. What's the solution? Because they need to know. Jesus says, come to me and drink. And how does one drink? Once again, it is to assimilate something to become a part of my life. We must partake of Jesus Christ. We must repent of our sins and ask Jesus to come into our lives. That's what Jesus is here for. That's what he said. How does does one do that? By believing in him. And when a person believes in him, what happens is this torrent of living water Comes out, comes out of their life. When Jesus taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, he spoke to it as a provision of God of power to be a witness to him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what he said. The two hardest places for me to be a witness for the Lord, is at home consistently every day. And when I'm far away where nobody knows who I am, that's when temptation comes. At home every day, you know me, you know my behavior, you know how I act. So hey, the Lord is saying, no, you you need to be a witness first in Jerusalem. And even to the outer parts of the earth, I need you to be a witness to me. Listen, Jesus promised us the power to be a witness in any setting we find ourselves in, no matter how wicked the world or how powerful the pull of sin is around us, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what I appreciate about verse 37 and 38, because you can read books, and I've read many of them, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they talk about the baptism of the Spirit. And the question is, does everything happen at the time of conversion? Is there a subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit after conversion? Then is being baptized with the Holy Spirit the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit? And we can get hung up on terminology. But the beautiful thing about the Scripture When Jesus is speaking, he makes things so simple. And I can go back to John chapter 7 and read these verses. And Jesus says, this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. This is the result of being filled by the Spirit of God, the behavior of my disciples. Not only is the Holy Spirit in my life, Because Paul tells us, if you you do not have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of Christ. So not only is the Holy Spirit in my life, but overflowing my life in such a way that it's a torrent of living water coming out of my life. In other words, we become human drinking fountains, and we're not only being refreshed, By God, but if we're those human drinking fountains, when we go or wherever we go, we are refreshing others. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. That's how we should live. So the question for us is not being filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit and all of this terminology. The question is, is that experience I have with the Holy Spirit? Do I have that experience? That's the question, and we should answer that. Have you ever had a torrent of yourself come out of your life? Hmm. Have you ever had that? Well, I'll go along with you guys. Neither have I. I hear that's at the, another church down the road. Hmm. Yeah, I've had that, and that's not good. That doesn't show people I'm a child of God. But people are refreshed when it's a torrent of Jesus Christ coming out of our lives. Lord, this is what we need to say and continuously say, Lord, refresh me with your Holy Spirit. Because the world cannot be refreshed by my flesh. Not at all. We need the aroma of Christ in our lives, and that is only by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need, and that's what Jesus is here to give us. Lord, refresh me with your Holy Spirit so that my life might be sweet and overflow with your sweetness Around my spouse, around my family members, around my friends, they don't need to see more of PV. They don't know to have, the, have the, the torrent of PV around them. They need the torrent of living water around them, so I can fre- refresh others. Jesus said this in Luke 11:13. "If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit?" To those who ask Him. So He's there for the asking. He's speaking of the Spirit, and He is the source, Jesus Christ is, of this kind of life. So He says in verse 39 But this He spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified, He had not been to the cross. And resurrected so he could give the spirit. But after Jesus is glorified, he goes. Remember, he goes to his disciples. They're shut up in a room. Remember the account? He comes through the wall and he speaks to them. And this is what he says in John 20, 22. So Jesus said to them again. Notice he says again because uh, John 14 he begins to speak, peace I have, peace I will leave with you. After he's resurrected, he goes through the wall and he begins to speak to them. He says, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, what did he do? He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Right there at that moment, they were born again. Imagine following Jesus for three and a half years, he's there. He's telling them what to do and how to do it, but they're not believers yet. Wow. But right here, he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. But even, this is my point, but even after he had breathed on his disciples and they were born again, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 49, Jesus tells them, Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance of emissions of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are, what, endued with power from on high. So even when they were born again, the Lord says, that'll get you into the kingdom. But I have more for you. I want you to have, some people call it, the second blessing of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's truly when you become a witness. An effective witness, anyway, for Christ. You can go through the Gospels and even a few of the epistles in the book of Acts. And sometimes when people were saved, they would be born again. And then that second blessing of the Holy Spirit would happen at the same time. Some people times they were born again. Paul, remember, he goes down to, to, to uh, it might have been to Samaria. Peter or Paul goes down to Samaria, lays hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. They were born again, but they received the uponness, the epi upon them of the Holy Spirit to be effective witnesses. That's what the scripture teaches. That's my question to you guys. Do you have this torrent of living water inside of you? To be an effective witness for Christ. That's necessary. It seems like with the uponness of the Holy Spirit, we truly become effective witnesses of Christ. I was talking to this guy at a memorial yesterday. And he says, Yeah, you know, I've been a Christian now for 10, 12 years. I, I was on fire for the Lord when I first got saved, two or three years, and now this world has just beat me down, but I'm still a believer. I don't witness, I don't do this. I read my Bible occasionally. That's not an effective witness. That's floating down that little rod at SeaWorld, or I guess they still have it at Six Flags, the Lazy River and you're just floating. I'm kicked back. I've got my ticket. Is that all the Lord wants his disciples to do and to be once we become believers? No. He wants us to be the same thing Jesus was, an effective witness, to share the gospel. It's not enough that my mom or dad, my sister or brother is a believer, and I probably had nothing to do with it. My point is You're still living. We're still living. We're still on this planet. So the Lord has something for us to do. We are trees of righteousness. If we have that torrent of living water inside of us, that won't keep keep me at home. I'll be an effective witness for Christ. That's what he's saying here. We are here to make Jesus Christ famous. The world doesn't need more of me. The world needs more of Jesus Christ so that they will come to him. He says in verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, verse 40, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying said, truly, this is the prophet. Yeah, they're right. Others says, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. His hour had not come. Then the officers, I like to call them the bouncers, came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Because they they sent them to bring Jesus. The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Wow. Amazing. I love to hear him speak to me. Early in the morning, I can be myself and I can just let him pour into my life. He says, no man ever spoke like this man. Luke four twenty eight. at the beginning of it says this, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Boy, my wife wished that was me. I, I'll tell him myself, because all the time I don't give gracious words. I can say the right thing, but I can say it in a way of, oh, okay, I'll say it. But Jesus Christ was famous for the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth, you guys. Because he was always in the bosom of the Father, and it was his will to please him. That's the goal, that's the lifestyle we want. Am I pleasing to you, Lord? In everything I do, because once again, if I'm pleasing to you, no one can, they might can cast accusations, but they're not accurate because I'm pleasing you. Surely my words will be gracious. Mark tells us in his gospel, and the common people heard him gladly. And Jesus also spoke with authority. Paul tells us to let our words be full of grace, you know, the rest seasoned with salt. Paul's all, he also says, speak the truth in love. We can do these things when the Holy Spirit, when that torrent of living water is bubbling up inside of us. But I'm here to tell you, you can't do it as often and the way you should do it if he's not. Oh, yeah, he might be in you. You might can float and notice I'm saying might, you might can float down that lazy river Until he calls you home. But I want Victor Allen Summerhour wants to know when I lay my head on that pillow and it's time for me to give up the ghost. I heard one preacher say, I want to have walked with him so much and get to the other side. And it's just an analogy because he'll be walking with me. He says, I can see the stepping stones on which to go to the other side. He says, when you when you've been floating down that lazy river all your life as a believer and you have to cross to the other side, you're just taking steps of faith because you can't see those stones. I want to know that I know that I know that absent from the body present with the Lord because of my walk with the Lord. And I can know that and we should know that. And that takes living, sanctified, set-apart life. That takes living for Jesus Christ and not for self. And it's hard to will that. I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm going to do it, Lord. Failure, failure, failure. God isn't saying, no, it shouldn't be like that. I'm in you. And this torrent of living water is inside of you. And I'm giving you everything you need to do to be that witness. That's what he's saying. And you want to be that witness. And and you know that's pleasing to the Lord. And that's what drives us. It is God who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. I don't do it. But because I want to please the Lord, he has given me everything I need to do it. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not a labor. It's a wanting. Lord, I need this torrent of living water inside of me because church is beginning to be a a drudgery. Reading my Bible is becoming bland, and I do it, but I get nothing out of it. and, And you seem distant. And Jesus, even for the believer, he's saying, come and drink of me. I will revive you. I will refresh you. That's what he's saying. So he picks up in verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? So they begin to to be scornful for anyone who might believe in Jesus. But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. These, these are the common people, the little people, but all of the intellectuals and the shakers and movers of the world, those, the elite, we're not running after him. He's nobody to us. We're our own God. That's what they're saying. We will not have this man reign over us because I'm smarter than to believe all of this foolishness. About this man being God. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? I understand now why Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, because he brings sense to this madness. He's saying now, Hey, I don't care what you think about this man Jesus. But he takes them back to the Scriptures. The Scripture says, whether you believe it or not, we have to judge this man by what the law says, not by your opinion. And he says in verse 52, They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Is that correct? These are religious leaders. These are guys who should know these things. And I'm just a knucklehead. And one guy comes to me very quickly, Jonah. So they miss Jonah and they probably miss Nahum. But see, when you come in to the equation with preconceived ideas, you'll go for your preconceived ideas. You don't want to hear the facts of things. And that's their problem here. They had this hatred for Jesus Christ, and they were blinded by their own hatred. Matthew Gospel tells us that when Jesus was a uh, Pilate had come to arrest Jesus, and Pilate is really wanting to let Jesus go free. Matthew twenty seven eighteen tells us this, for he knew speaking of Pilate that they had handed him over. Why? because of envy. They didn't want their religious order to come tumbling down. They liked their religious status and and their prestige and all of the other things the world could give them. And all of that religiosity was about to be tumbled down. And they didn't want that. And it was because of envy. But remember, at the beginning of this account, Jesus said this, You both know me, and you know where I am from. They knew Jesus Christ was the Messiah, but they wanted to reign over themselves. That's the issue. What about you this morning? What about you this morning? If there's anyone here or watching that have not given their lives to Jesus Christ. The only reason is for you're wanting to reign over yourself and that's what you're doing. I will not have this man to reign over me. There's a terrible destination that you're going to if you don't allow Jesus Christ to reign over you. And that's hell. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how morally good you may think you are, the righteousness is God. And if we don't repent of our sins and give our lives to Jesus Christ, you know nothing of this torrent of living water. You face an eternity in hell. What about believers? You say, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. But Jesus says there's more than that. That the Holy Spirit is in us. Yes, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. But truly, there is a second blessing, and it's that blessing that we need every day, that torrent of living water that's inside of us, that makes us excited. No matter what's going on in our life, there's something, there's someone, not something, there's someone that God can give us and will continuously keep us motivated to be a witness. And that is the epi, the uponness of of the Holy Spirit. That's ours for the asking. That makes us effective witnesses, and that's what we are called here to be. That's the truth. But we can't do that. We can't be that if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to come upon us and make us effective witnesses. Paul says this, being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit upon us. That's what Jesus Christ is offering. That's what he's offering for every believer here. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is that torrent of living water inside of you, because no one wants a torrent of ourselves coming out. They don't want that. So that's not beneficial to the kingdom of God. But there is someone that when we speak, whether in trials or tribulations, whether in good times or bad times, if we have that bubbling up of the Holy Spirit inside of us, those words will be kind and gentle and sweet and in love. And it's because I'm walking Side by side, step by step with God. And I don't have to bring up the gospel of Jesus Christ. People will say that guy, that girl, that man, that woman is something different about them. Everybody, and I'll close with this, everybody can smile and say everything's okay when things are going well. That's not the test. Even I can do that. The test is when the bottom has fallen out. And they know that you are a believer, and yet you're not even that much concerned for your life. You're, You're concerned for those around you. That's that torrent of living water. That's what Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ can offer. The worship team can come up. And that's what Jesus is asking. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Are we being effective witnesses for him? Or are we just floating down the lazy river and say, I've got my ticket? Meditate on these things. Understand what the Lord has for us. We need to be continuously filled with his spirit because things aren't going to get better. Things aren't going to get better. And for us to be the salt and light of the earth that Jesus has called us to be. We can't be like the church of Laodicea. I'm rich, in need of nothing. Mm -mm. Jesus says, but you're naked and you're blind and you don't even know that you need me. We need him. We need him every day, every second of every day. And we need to let Him have His way in us that we might be effective witnesses. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of a man who said, yeah, I was was a believer, been a believer for 15 years, 20 years. I knew I was saved. But it wasn't until I asked for the Holy Spirit to come upon me to make me an effective witness, to make me a better husband, a better father. It wasn't until then that I knew what living for Christ was all about. It's hard picking up our crosses every day and following you, Jesus. Jesus. How much sweeter it is when we allow the Holy Spirit to have his way to come upon us. And you carry our cross. You carry our burden. And, Lord, that's what I pray for every believer here. That, like Jesus said, all you have to do is ask. And I'm willing because I want you to be an effective witness May we ask for that sincerely and allow you to show us what living the submitted, the surrendering life of Christ is all about. That's my prayer for Calvary Restore. That's my prayer for every believer here. And for those who don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they're not even in the ballgame. The guillotine of sin is still upon their necks. And Lord, I pray that by your grace you would call them into a personal relationship with you. And by your grace you give them the faith to believe in you, Father God. I pray that you would move in our unsaved children's lives, our unsaved friends' lives, our unsaved family members' lives, Lord, that we've been praying. Lord, would you move? Would you open the eyes of their understanding? that they might see the glorious risen Savior and how much he loves them. And then they will be invited to drink of this living water. Father, we love you. Give us a heart for you and everything else will come together. Seek first your kingdom and its righteousness and all these other things will be added unto us. May we love you with a full heart and that you will have your way in us And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.